It's good to be back. Aileen and I have been away for a couple of weeks, traveling south to north in South Carolina and then north to Maine, almost all the way up into Canada. So we have driven hundreds of miles, and uh, the Lord kept us safe for the whole time. Thank you for your prayers. It is good to be back with you, and it is a privilege to open up God's Word at this time. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. As Alex has said, we're returning this afternoon to our series of studies through the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, the historical account of the life and death of Jesus, a record inspired by God and preserved for over 2,000 years, uh, supernaturally by the hand of God, so that we could actually read a reliable historical record of what actually happened in Jesus' life. I don't know if you've ever noticed how we sometimes stand as a way of showing respect and appreciation if we are particularly appreciative of a performance, we give a standing ovation. And when somebody comes into the room that we highly respect and admire, we stand wherever we are sitting, we stand up to greet them. It's one way of showing respect. I wonder if we might stand now as we read God's Word out of respect for the Word of God and even more profoundly out of respect for the God of the Word, the God who gave this Word to us. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to insert a few comments uh, in this reading uh, taken from the other Gospel records uh, to fill in a few of the details uh, so that we have a complete sense of what happened on this occasion. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, that is, just six days after what happened at the end of chapter 16, where Jesus tells his disciples they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him if they want to be his disciples, after six days of teaching them that, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. In Luke's account, he says that he took them up there to pray. And as he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white, as light. Mark's account says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Luke's account adds that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who had been taken up there to do what? To pray, had actually done what? Fallen asleep. And they were supposed to be praying with Jesus when they fell asleep and the transfiguration happened. Mark's account says that when they saw what they saw, they were terrified. And behold, 
There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when God interrupted him. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Mark's account says the Son of Man would suffer many things. And be treated with contempt. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. O Lord, a simple, simple request, but a request, Father, that I believe is at the core of every single person who truly loves you. The words of Moses, Lord, show us your glory. The glory revealed in Jesus Christ, the glory revealed on that high mountain, Lord, show us your glory. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I am, I am sure that you have been outside at different times on a very cloudy day when the sky has been filled with very dark clouds. And yet on the fringes of those clouds you could see the golden edge of sunlight. Often the effect of the sun edging the clouds with gold is a beautiful one, even though it still remains mostly cloudy and the sun is almost entirely obscured. Then as you're looking at this scene, occasionally what happens is that there is a break in the clouds and the full blazing light of the sun shines through. 
the brilliance of the sun was always there. But now it shines through because the cloud gets out of the way. Jesus' life on earth was like that. His identity was like a cloudy day with golden edges of glory and little spaces breaking the clouds for his glory to shine through. But mostly, while he was on earth the first time, there were very few full breakthroughs of his sunlit glory, except in Matthew 17 and the other gospel accounts. Jesus, Jesus takes his three leading disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain to have what you could call a kingdom of God leadership prayer meeting. And the disciples fall asleep. It sounds familiar. They do this a little bit later in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus calls them to come together to pray and they fall asleep. It sounds familiar, not just because it is something the disciples do, it is something we all have done, falling asleep while praying. But while they were there, something happens. The, the clouds rolled back, if you will, and the sun shined through. The, the veil that covered and shaded over the full glory of who Jesus was and is, that veil was pulled back a bit. You see, for about 30 to 33 years that had elapsed since Matthew chapter 1, when the eternal Son of God had allowed himself to be placed in embryonic form in a virgin's womb, his full identity and his full majesty had been veiled. There had been light bursts of glory peeking through the clouds, through his miracles and his healings and his quieting of storms and his authority over demons and things of that nature. People, though, in seeing those things, were only seeing the fringes. They were, they were only seeing the flickering glimpses of his splendor. But here and now, the cloud breaks open and the blazing sun, the brilliant glory of Jesus shines through and Peter, James, and John are all of a sudden very much awake. It, it reminded me of, uh, have you ever had the experience of being sound asleep in a very dark room and somebody has the nerve to walk in and throw the light on? Now, this is the ultimate experience of that. I used to do that to my kids just to tease them. Just one of those things that I got a thrill out of. All right, kids, time to get up, light goes on. Ah, you know, oh, dad, oh, dad. Well, this wasn't a teasing thing going on here. They were sound asleep, and all of a sudden, the cosmic light went on. All of a sudden, God the Father revealed the full glory of his Son. All of a sudden, the darkness was interrupted. This was the ultimate wake up from a deep sleep because of a blazing light experience. This wasn't because there was any teasing going on. It was because these disciples desperately needed, they desperately needed a glorious, majestic, terrifying, comforting, life 
life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. They needed to see Jesus for who he is. You'll remember, this was just six days after what happened at the end of chapter 16, where Jesus had said to them, look, it is going to get rough from here on out. If you're going to follow me, there is going to be a price to pay. Every day of your life, you're going to have to take up a cross and basically die to yourself if you want to follow me. It's going to get hard. It's going to get rough. And the disciples had heard this. And Jesus knew that this was a tough message for them to hear. And the only way they were going to be willing to follow Christ in that way is if they really knew who Christ is. And so God the Father and Son said, it is time to turn the light on. It is time to pull back the clouds. It is time to show them who Jesus is. This was a glorious, majestic, terrifying, yet comforting experience with Jesus. Can I suggest to you that what these three men experienced here, despite their initial terror, is what every single one of us craves and needs. Have you, have you ever noticed our human fascination with things powerful and majestic and awesome? Why is it that we get as close as we can to powerful things? glorious things. I don't mean to make light of Hurricane Dorian and all that's been praying for the preservation of people's lives as that aims for the coast. It's going through the Bahamas now and aims for the coast. Let's pray that God would protect. God would protect. But have you, have you ever had a moment where you thought it just might be cool to spend a couple of minutes in the eye of a hurricane? Anybody else crazy like that? I mean, just, just a cup. How many of you have, have the rest of you are chicken? Just, I mean, come on. Just, just 30 seconds encountering raw power. Sometimes I thought that, you know, I think I'd be content if somebody just strapped onto my back some kind of space travel unit that would you know, just hurl me through space and I could just go for the next hundred years just at a nice safe pace, just seeing the glory of it all. Don't you, don't, you know, wouldn't that be cool? Some of you are just not into this. <laughs> all right, how about this? Do you ever have moments in your life where you see a sunset or you see a newborn baby, or you hear a song, or you hear a singer, and you say, whoa, uh, there we go, all right, we're getting whoa, what's going on there? It's called wonder, awe. We have this fascination with things wonderful. Some of us would like that to be wonderful and dangerous together. 
We have within us an impulse to worship. See, that's the wonder instinct. Why? You ever wonder about this? If this is, I'm off track here, but I'm going to say it anyway. You, know, you ever wonder if we, if all we are, are highly evolved, whatever, and and are not creatures made in the image of God, if all we are is this random collection of chemical chemicals and chemical actions and reactions just thrown together by chance and there's no God who made us and there's no God in whose image we exist, why in the world do all humans have this wonder impulse? Where does this impulse to worship come from? Why do we like whoa? Because we are made to worship God. We are made to have the ultimate worship experience to encounter the Almighty, to encounter the All-Glorious, to encounter the One who exists in Himself, who has no shadow in Him. He is nothing but light and beauty and power and goodness and truth. We are made to bow before Him. We are made to lift our hands to Him. We are made to sing to Him. We are made to be satisfied with Him. All we do as human beings is chase after substitutes. All the cheap and unsatisfying idols of this world. And God has said, no, I made you for something more. And he gives these three men, Peter, James, and John, the ultimate experience. Just about ruined them. They were terrified. But it was an experience of unveiled majesty. Unveiled majesty. It is an experience for which we all crave. And will one day, if we love Jesus, we will one day have. This event is stunning. You and I may not have a vision like Peter, James, and John had. We may never have such a visible encounter with Jesus until we get to heaven. But we can learn things in this text that actually help us to have a whoa response to Jesus. This, this text is God telling us four things about Jesus. Telling us who Jesus is. He is God's beloved Son. What Jesus is like. He is blazing in His glory, yet comforting of our fears. What Jesus came to do to suffer and die for us. And how we are to respond to Jesus, we should listen to Him. Let me run through these quickly one by one. First, God tells us who Jesus is, God's beloved Son. The question of Jesus' identity is the all-important question of life. How you answer that question decides everything about how you live your life and how you spend your eternity. Back in chapter 16... Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? 
They gave him a series of various answers. Jesus waited out their answers, and then he turned to them and said what? Who do you say that I am? And to that, Peter gave his glorious response. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In this moment, it's the Father's turn to tell us who Jesus is. A voice from the cloud, verse 5, said, This is my beloved Son. And God means here by son, not son by adoption, as if he had been adopted as God's son. He means by son here, adoption or son in nature, in essence, that he is, the, he is God himself. He is God the son in the scriptures. The phrase son of is used in this way. Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, we, we know that Barnabas was a very encouraging man. He was always encouraging, so much so that the early Christians called him, they nicknamed him, Son of Encouragement. Because encouragement was in his very nature. It's just what he did. It, it was who he was. James and John, on the other hand, Jesus calls them Sons of Thunder. Why? Well, because their personalities were thunderous and volatile. It was in their very nature to be volatile, almost violent men. And Jesus said, you're sons of thunder. Here, Jesus is called the Son of God. He was God's Son in His very nature, in His very essence, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And that is what the Son is announcing, or the Father is announcing and unveiling here, lest anyone doubt it. Moses and Elijah are called up to the mountain. Moses and Elijah were good men. Moses and Elijah were great men. They were the, they were the most high-ranking prophets of the Old Testament. And they are called to stand there. But there is only one that is addressed. There is only one that is described. Moses, good man. Elijah, good man. But God the Father says, this is my son. This one is my son. You and I need to come to grips with that. You and I need to reckon with the evidence, to reckon with history, to reckon with reality, and come to grips with who Jesus is. He is the eternal Son of God. This text also reveals what Jesus is like. He is blazing in His glory while comforting of our fears. And I love how these two things are brought together here. Notice what the apostles saw. Verse 2. Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. He was transfigured, means transformed, altered in his appearance. He was revealed in a whole new way, and his face shone like the sun. Now there's a bit of a historical coincidence here. One of the other people in this event had an experience of his face shining. Who was it? Moses. In the Old Testament, as Moses 
went up on the mountain and, and talked to God and encountered God over a period of several weeks. It says that he, his face shone brightly. But in Moses' case, the shining was a reflection of the glory of God. The glory of God shined onto Moses, onto his face, and made his face bright. That is not what's going on here. Moses' shining was a reflection. Jesus' shining was the shining out, the shining forth of what was in him. This is his own glory. This isn't reflected glory. This is Jesus shining forth his majesty. This is Jesus pulling the clouds back. This is Jesus pulling the veil back. And Jesus letting his majesty shine. My friends, this is, this is what Jesus is like. Don't, don't let the cloud cover mislead you. Don't, don't let your own personal cloud cover mislead you. This is who he is. It's who he is. And one of the problems with pictures of Jesus, besides the fact that they always seem to be uh, white American European with blue eyes, but what, you know, apart from that problem, uh, is that they never do him justice. The problem with pictures of Jesus is that they can't capture his majesty. In Revelation 1, the same John had another encounter with Jesus after the resurrection. Same response, falls on his face as though dead. Jesus comes, touches him, lifts him up, says, don't be afraid. But what happens? What happens when a person sees Jesus as he really is? Not as we imagine him or draw him to be, but as he really is. The majesty of Christ. The unveiled power and glory of Christ shines on and shines into us. And it's the ultimate to wake up from a deep sleep experience. He is blazing in his glory. Folks, if, if Jesus were to pull back the clouds right now, if Jesus were to open the skies right now, if Jesus were to take the roof off this building, and he was to show himself to us right now, as he is, what do you think you'd do? You'd probably run for cover. Hide under the pews. In our present condition, we are not made to survive seeing the majesty of God. We're going to have to be given new bodies for that. Experience it now, you feel like you're disintegrating. The day's coming when we will be given transformed bodies and the capacity to look right into the blazing face of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, come, right? Oh, Lord, come. He is blazing in His glory. 
And if we were to see him now, we'd, we'd duck and hide. But what would he do? He'd come up to us and he'd touch us and say, get up. Have no fear. I love how those two things come together. He is a being of infinite majesty who is worthy of all of our worship. He is worthy of all of our adoration. He will produce in us eternal, endless woes. He is in his unveiled glory. In our present condition, terrifying. But he is at the same time comforting. And he says, do not fear. Do not fear. It is right, folks, that we have an initial response when we think about Jesus. It is right that we tremble a bit. But then let's hear the words of Christ and hear him say to us, do not fear. Have no fear. I am not here to destroy you. I am not here to ruin you. I am not here to slay you. I am not here to make you disintegrate. I am here to rescue you. I am here to save you. I am here to love you. I am here to satisfy you. I am here to be everything to you. He is awesome. And he is I grew up singing a song, an old hymn. It goes like this My God, how wonderful thou art! Thy majesty, how bright! How beautiful thy mercy seat in depths of burning light! How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be. Thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awesome purity. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears. And worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. Yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art. For thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. Oh, I love that hymn, always have, and singing it since childhood. Oh, how I love thee, O Lord, almighty as thou art. For thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. He is full of majesty, but he comes to comfort. He comes to rescue. He comes to save. We are told here who the Son is, God's beloved Son. We are told here what he is like in his blazing glory and yet comforting of our fears. 
We are told here why he came, what he came to do. For in the text we are told in early on in verse 9 that as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. He's talking about himself here. That ought to jar you a little bit. They just saw the majesty of the eternal Son of God and now Jesus is saying to them, oh, by the way, I'm going to die. How does that fit together? And then a little bit later in verse 12, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Here is the eternal Son of God who is this blazing deity standing on the mountain who is saying, I am now going to suffer and I'm going to die. How do we put these two things together? How can the eternal Son of God die? How can the everlasting God die? Isn't it true that in Him is life, as John puts it? Yes, those things are true. But He came to serve. He came to suffer. He came to die for us. Over in Matthew 20, you know the text. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus came to pay the ransom for our sins. Jesus came to pay the price for our sins. Are you a sinner? Yes, you are. Yes, I am. And if you knew the full depth of it, the darkness of it, if, if, if you knew how bad you would be without God's restraint in your life, if I knew what I was capable of doing, if God did not put His grip on me and say, no, Tim, I'm not letting you do that. If the full darkness of my heart ever came out in its full measure, the sight would be so ugly, the sight would be so terrifying and I would realize what hope is there for this sinner in the sight of a God who is blazing in his majesty how can this sinner stand before that holiness the answer is that he who possessed that holiness and glory for all of eternity stepped into time he became a little baby in the manger. He grew up this perfect little child, sinless one. Grew up into manhood and then with absolute voluntary, loving intentionality, he made his way to the cross. And on the cross died for our sins. He suffered many things at the hands of the people of his day and bore their contempt as they nailed him to the cross and left him there to bleed out and die. He who was in the very form of God emptied himself, took the form of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Even death on the cross. And he did that for you and me, that we might be forgiven, that we might be ransomed, that we might have life. So, this event tells us who Jesus is, the Son of God. It tells us 
what Jesus is like. He is blazing in his glory and comforting of our fears. It tells us why Jesus came. He came to suffer and die for us. And it tells us finally how we should respond. Notice verses 3 through 5. Now we'll just go with verse 5. Out of the bright cloud that overshadowed them, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Here is the response, the only response, the only fitting response, the only response that such a glorious Lord and Savior, such a majestic being is deserving of. Listen to Him. Can I suggest to you that that's really the essence of saving faith and what it means to become a Christian? This is, this is the heart of it. What, what does it mean to really believe in Jesus? What it means is that you are, from this point on, going to listen to Him. That He is your Lord. He is your Master. What He says, you believe. What He declares, you receive. What He commands, you obey. What He promises, you trust. What He asks of you, you surrender. Listen to Listen to him. Is that, is he the single focus of your existence as a person here this afternoon? Is, is Jesus your Lord? I'm not saying to perfection. Oh my. I, I, can't, I can't go 15 seconds in perfection. I've never experienced perfection for three seconds. Always something going wrong inside. This isn't perfection, but it is direction. It is recognizing it's coming to that place in your life where you really believe that Jesus is Lord, the eternal Son of God made flesh, and you realize that He and He alone is worthy of your allegiance, and you pledge your allegiance to Him. You say, I'm going to listen to Him from now on. He's my God. He's my Lord. He's my Master. He's my Savior. You done that? You done that? You say, why should I? I'll give you two reasons and then I'm done. Reason number one, He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. He made you. He sustained you. He keeps you alive. He's given you everything you have. He died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead. He's alive today. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. Reason number two, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, if you surrender to Him as your Lord and Savior, the day's going to come, the day's going to come when you see Him. And in seeing Him become like Him, in Philippians chapter 3, it says that our citizenship is in heaven 
from where we look for a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies into conformity to His glorious body. That means the day is coming when we're all going to be transfigured. The day is coming when we're all going to be shining like the noonday sun, as the prophet puts it. We're all who believe in Christ, going to one day be with Christ and like Christ, even higher than the angels. And if that doesn't motivate you to bend your knee to Christ today, then my friend, you're not thinking straight. And if you need more reasons, come and talk to us, because the reasons are a plenty. But at the bottom of it all, I think very often in our lives, we don't surrender to Christ because we don't want to surrender to anybody. The issue is not, is he real or true? The issue is, will you humble yourself in the presence of the living God? And will you say, I need Jesus. Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus. That's the issue. May God give us grace to respond. Our brother Rick is going to come and lead us as we close, but we're also going to sing just as a way of, of opening our hearts to the Lord, uh, to, to hear from Him and to have Him shine into our hearts. His glory, His blazing beauty, His satisfying light. Let's sing, let's reflect, let's respond.